Luke chapter 3. This is uh, message number 7 in a series on the Gospel of Luke. It's just a real simple uh, belief that if we lift up Jesus and make much of him, that the Holy Spirit will, will move and will honor that. Um, last week it was John the Baptist. It's like going to a gig and you have a support act that comes on at the start. Um, get the crowd going and, and, and get everybody sort of ready for the main event or the main act. And then John the Baptist, the support act, the preparation guy, vanishes. In fact, in Luke's account, we don't even read that John baptized Jesus. We know he did, but Luke doesn't actually say that. Luke just says that Jesus was baptized. And John steps to one side, and he's hardly heard of again throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke because the main character is now on stage, and Luke wants to focus on him almost exclusively for the rest of his Gospel. Let me read verses 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 3. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. We're going to cover a little bit further than that today, but that will do us for now. Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you will work deeply within us, that your word will really affect us, change us, encourage us, challenge us. Whatever needs to happen, we, d- we just ask that you would have your way in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Why did Jesus get baptized? Like That seems quite unnecessary, doesn't it? Jesus didn't need to repent John's baptism. He said, you know, last week in, uh, in the first part of Luke chapter 3, John said uh, that this is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus never sinned. So what's he doing getting baptized? In, in Matthew, John basically says to Jesus, I should not be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. This is all the wrong way around. And we sort of, we, we hope that we're going to get an answer from Jesus as to why he's being baptized. But he gives a slightly frustrating answer to John and says, let it be so it is proper for us to do this. <laughs> you ever, you know, ask that question? It's a classic kid ask parent scenario where a kid asks a parent something and you just say, just, it just, that's just the way it is, okay? Just, just accept it, deal with it. That's just the way it is. Basically, this is how Jesus answers John. He says, uh, we're doing this because it's the right thing to do. And that's it. And we, we don't get any more. But I think we can, we can sort of read between the lines a little bit and say that even though Jesus did not need to be baptized, there is a reason that he did it. There's a greater reason that we'll see a little bit later on, I think. But one of, the reason, or one of the reasons I think he did it was he's, he's endorsing what John said in the first half of, of Luke chapter 3. What we looked at last week, that call for repentance and that repentance then, the whole sort of heart of, of what John said repentance looked at or looked like was it means treating people well. So when the tax collectors came and asked him, what do we do now that we've repented? He said, stop ripping people off. And whenever the other people came to him and said, what do we do now that we've repented? He said, right, if you've got two coats and you see somebody with no coat, give them your coat. 
If you've got plenty of food and you see someone with no food, give them some food. Treat people well. And Jesus' baptism is endorsing the message of John. He doesn't come along and say, right, forget about John, everything he said, you know, ignore it and just listen to me. He's endorsing what John said about repentance and about forgiveness. And also what he's doing is he is identifying with the people. There are many people coming to John to be baptized. Many people. We know that some of the religious folks were coming and watching from a distance from what we read last week. But there were lots and lots of just regular people coming along to be baptized. They were the people that Jesus came to save. And he identifies with them from day one by going through the waters of baptism in the same way that they did. But Luke says very little about the baptism. He really doesn't go into any detail and I'm going to follow his lead and not go into a lot of detail about Jesus' baptism this morning. I want to pull out the things that Luke does choose to focus on. And it seems that this was a really private moment. There's a voice that comes from heaven, but it doesn't seem like the crowd are able to hear it. It looks like Jesus was able to hear it. If the crowd had heard it, you would have expected a reaction or a response. And the voice doesn't, doesn't say, in, in Luke's account, doesn't say, this is my son. He says, you are my son. So it does seem like this is a private moment where God speaks to Jesus and tells him these things. And I want to just pick out a few things about it. First one is, it happened as he was praying. That's in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. None of the other gospel writers record that. As he was praying. But Luke has this thing where he really emphasizes Jesus' prayer life in a way that is much more noticeable than the other gospel writers. The other gospel writers, of course, record it. But Luke squeezes it in here and there all over the place. And he tells us that when Jesus was praying, that's when the Holy Spirit came upon him. And I want you to see that that Luke does this throughout his gospel. So if we jump forward to Luke chapter 6, whenever Jesus is choosing the 12 disciples, only Luke tells us that he prayed all night before he selected them. All night long, praying. This was so important. In Luke chapter 9, whenever we have the moment where Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter, of course, comes in with his response. Again, that is in Luke's gospel. That's in the context of prayer. Jesus is praying when that happens. A little bit further on in Luke chapter 9, when the transfiguration takes place, um, again, only Luke tells us that it happened while Jesus was praying. In Luke chapter 11, whenever Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray, using the words that we call the Lord's Prayer, again, that he is praying himself and the disciples come and say, can you teach us how to do this better? And then in the garden, the other gospel writers record it as well, of course, whenever he's about to to be betrayed and about to be taken to his trial and to the cross, he is praying in the garden. It's something that Luke puts massive emphasis on. And I just want to do the same thing here briefly. (laughs) Nothing happens without prayer. Nothing. Just nothing of any value happens without prayer. And as a church, we need to be praying. We need to be praying individually and we need to be praying corporately. And I have thrown this out at you before and I'll throw it out at you again. I'm not a control freak. If you want to start another prayer meeting because the Tuesday night slot doesn't work in the schedule that you've got, you go right ahead. 
You can start it here. You can start it in your home. You can do what you want. Okay. You don't have to fall into some, you know, rigorous, rigid schedule. If you feel a desire to pray and to pull a few people together to pray, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it. Because the church needs to be praying. If we're going to see breakthrough on the ground, we've got to first of all have breakthrough in the air. If the church is going to break through uh, 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 into a next stage of taking ground, into new things, into seeing God's kingdom come, into seeing what we all want to see in our hearts for this town, it will not happen in the sort of physical until it has happened in the heavenly realms in prayer. And that is, that is just one of those simple fundamental truths, but one that we find it so hard to actually act on. And life is busy, and I know that, and you know that. We are living in a culture where you have got to fight for every free minute. You really do. A culture of productivity and work, 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 and more, 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 more. And it is so hard to actually step out of that and silence yourself for prayer. But I would really, really encourage you. If you have a wee inkling in your heart, maybe we could have a prayer meeting in our house on a, on a Thursday night from 9 to 10. Go for it. Do it. Do it. Because we need more prayer if we're going to see more breakthrough. It is, it is at the heart of Luke's gospel that every time something huge happens in the life of Jesus, he is in prayer. He is in intimacy with his Father when it happens. And heaven opens. Um, still in, in verse 21, as he was praying, heaven opened. I don't know what that looked like, but I know what it was a fulfillment of. In Isaiah 64, verse 1, Isaiah, towards the end of his book, just cries out to God, if you would just tear open the heavens and come down. That's what we need. <laughs> He's desperate for it. He's desperate for the presence of God. He is, he is in exile and he is desperate for the presence of a God or he's prophesying into the exile and he wants God's presence and he feels as if God is miles away and he just screams, if you would just tear open the heavens and actually come down and be with us. And sometimes when you talk to people and you say, you know, people who maybe don't believe in God or, or want to ignore him or push him to one side. And they'll say, well, why doesn't God come and do something about the mess of the world? You know, look at all the stuff that's going on. And why doesn't he just come down and get involved and do something about it? And the simple answer is, he did. <laughs> he did. We just celebrated it this morning. He did come down. He did do something about it. And we have to live in the light of that. Heaven opens and the Spirit then descends on him bodily like a dove. Now, we don't know if it was an actual dove. <laughs> it was like a dove. When the words in bodily form means the Spirit came with substance. It was not some fluffy, airy, fairy thing. The Spirit came upon him with substance and with power. And if Jesus needed the Spirit upon him and within him, does not the church need the Spirit upon us and within us as well? And not only does the Spirit come, but the Word comes. And one of the things you'll see on the board, on the wall, that is important to us as a church is Word and Spirit. If you're all word, if you're all Bible, if you're, if you're not interested in the power of the Holy Ghost, you can very easily descend into legalism. You can descend into an obsession with theology that just has little life in it, if any. If you push the word to one side and it's all spirit 
and presence and experience, you can very easily go off down all sorts of random rabbit holes because you don't have the Word of God to keep you right. We need both. We need the Word of God and we need the Spirit of God. And at Jesus' baptism, you can see both of them at work, the Word and the Spirit. And the Word that comes from heaven, the voice that, that speaks, says, You are my Son, whom I love with you, I am well pleased. I want you to see that there are three things there that God is saying about Jesus that, that helps Jesus to understand more fully who he is and what his calling is. The first one is, you are my son. And he's referring back to Psalm 2, verses 6 to 8, where God says, I have installed my king. It's talking about a king on Zion, my holy mountain. And he says later on, halfway down there, you are my son. And whenever God speaks to Jesus at his baptism, he is declaring, you are the king. You are the one descended from David that Israel has been waiting for. The messianic king, that is who you are. You are my son. Not only you are my son, but whom I love. And you might remember a story from Genesis where Abram takes Isaac after God has said to him, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go into the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. You are my son whom I love, my son whom I love. Take your son who you love. And as Jesus hears that, he knows what will lie ahead of him. Isaac went up the mountain with Abraham. Isaac got off the hook because a ram was caught in the hedge and they sacrificed the ram instead. When Jesus goes to the place of sacrifice, there will be no ram. There will be a lamb and he will be it. You are my son. You are the king whom I love. You're going to sacrifice. And with you, I am well pleased. Or in some other versions, it might say, in whom I delight. Charlene read this morning from the Psalms, he rescued me because he delights in me. Do you believe that God delights in you? <laughs> or do you run about through life thinking God is constantly disappointed in me? <laughs> he delights in you. He delights in you. <laughs> Just believe it. He delights in you. He delights in me. Even when we mess up, he delights in us. We bring him joy. Just allow your soul to accept that and receive it, that you bring joy to your Father. He delights in you. Do you know one of the worst things I think you can say about another human being is that they are a disappointment? You're not a disappointment to God. He delights in you. And this is harking back to Isaiah 42. And a section in Isaiah there where there are four songs called servant songs. And it's hard to figure out exactly who this servant is because sometimes it seems to refer to Israel and sometimes it seems to refer to the coming Messiah who we now know as Jesus. But God's saying to him, one of the things about this servant is that he will suffer. Isaiah 53 is, is one of the most famous chapters in that section where you read about the suffering, the wounding, the crushing, the bruising that the servant undergoes. You're my son, you are the king. 
I love you, you know, and you will go to sacrifice. I am pleased with you. You are my servant. You will suffer. Jesus did not come out of the water punching the air and shouting. <laughs> Baptisms are wonderful. And it's wonderful when you see people getting baptized and they come up out of the water and they're two hands in the air and they're shouting and they're yo-hoing because they're celebrating. That's fantastic. More power to them. I encourage that fully. No problem with that at all. That's a good thing. To come out with a big smile on your face out of the water and celebrate. But Jesus, as he came out of the water, he was processing some very weighty things that had been said to him by his father. And he knew what was lying ahead of him. And in Isaiah 42, when it talks there about the fact that, that he is the servant, and again, when you go back and you look at Isaiah 40 to 55 and you see what's going on there, what God is saying to Jesus is, you, you're going to fulfill Israel's calling. Other people in the Old Testament are referred to as the Son of God. Not many of them, but one of them is Israel itself. Israel in Exodus chapter 4 is referred to as being God's son. He says to Pharaoh, let my son go. And what God is saying to Jesus here is you're going to fulfill what Israel should have done. And one of the things that we need to see in the early chapters of Luke and in Matthew as well is that what Jesus is doing is he is rerunning the story of Israel. This is so important theologically to understanding who Jesus is and what he's doing. He is rerunning the story of Israel in his own life. Israel was born miraculously. Go back to Jacob and Isaac and back to Abram and Sarah and you've got miraculous birth for the nation of Israel. You've got Israel in Egypt and then called out of Egypt. You've got Israel declared to be the firstborn son of God. You've got Israel passing through the waters of the Red Sea. You've got Israel tested for 40 years in the wilderness. Israel's called a vine. Israel had 12 sons. And then you've got Jesus, who was miraculously born. You've got Jesus who went into Egypt out of, after his birth and was called out of Egypt. You've got Jesus who has declared here, you are my son. Jesus is coming through waters just as Israel went through the Red Sea. Jesus is coming through the waters of baptism. Just as Israel then went into the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus is going to go into the wilderness for 40 days. Israel was called the vine and Jesus said, I'm the true vine. Israel had 12 sons and Jesus picked 12 disciples. Ladies, there's a reason he picked 12 men. And it's nothing to do with men somehow being more anointed than women. It's because he was mirroring Israel. It had to be 12 men to reflect the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why he picked the 12 men for his disciples. It is not a statement about women. <laughs> Don't allow it to be twisted into something that devalues women in the church. All the experiences that Israel had, Jesus is now having them. You've got other watery moments. Watery is a Northern Irish word, isn't it? It's almost, you need to put two T's in there and two R's in there. to Watery moments in your Bible. But I want you to see again what's happening here because we, we have a tendency, I think, as Christians sometimes to ignore the story of Israel and not realize what Jesus is actually doing. There's a watery moment in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Now look at this. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said. We've got the Spirit. We've got God himself. The Spirit is over the water and God speaks. 
and from the water something comes out. Dry land appears from the water. But I want you to see the, the emblems that are here. The Spirit, the Father, the Word, and the water in creation itself. You have another watery moment in Exodus chapter 14. Whenever God's people are facing the Red Sea and they've got Pharaoh's army behind them and the Red Sea in front of them and they're in a tight spot. And we read that all night long, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind. Now, if you know a little bit of, uh, of the Holy Spirit and a little bit of Hebrew enough to be dangerous with, wind and spirit are the same word. So once again here, we have the Spirit, we have water, and dry land appears. Do you see it? Because the moment that, that God's people came through the Red Sea was a moment of new creation. A moment that he was calling them out of slavery, making a way through the waters. His spirit was over the water and they came through and they were redeemed and set free. It's a moment of, of new creation and also a moment of exodus. But look at what's there. The spirit is there over the water. Same as Genesis, the Spirit is there over the water. And the same here in, in Jesus' baptism, we've got the Spirit and we've got the water. And I do believe that what, what God would say here is that the, the Father and the Spirit and the Son are all together. When you read these verses in Luke chapter 3, Jesus is there, the Father's speaking, the Spirit is there. The Trinity are all working together and they're basically making a declaration, I have done creation before and now I'm going to do new creation again. I'm going to recreate humanity. I'm going to recreate broken men and women in my image I've done creation before and I'm going to do creation again. And I believe he's also reflecting back to the Red Sea. I've done exodus before. I have taken people before from a place of slavery. I have supernaturally, by the power of my spirit, made a way for them where there was no way and brought them into freedom. And I'm going to do it again. And Jesus' baptism, it's only two verses in Luke, and it might just look like a cute wee thing that Jesus did, but no, it's a massive thing declaring what he is about. I am about new creation, and I am about new exodus. I will remake you. <laughs> I will remake you, and I will set you free. And I think ultimately the reason why Jesus got baptized, I suggested a couple of reasons earlier on, but I think ultimately it is going back to creation and to the Red Sea. And it's a declaration of what God is actually up to. Class. And then there's a random list of names. Yeah. Look at verses 23 up to the end of the chapter. How do you feel when you get to these lists in your reading plan? Do you, do you read them? We've just had a confession from my left that somebody doesn't read them. Um, oh man, look at that, you know. So what I'm going to do now is go through each one of these, tell you their back. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, this was really important if you were a Jew. It was important that you could trace your ancestry back, particularly to Abraham. And prove, this is my heritage. I am a Jew. I am a son of Abraham. I am one of God's people. So even though we look at this and it bores the socks off us. And I tell you, talk about speed reading. When you get to a list of names like this, you, know, you just fly through and you randomly pick up a couple of syllables. And then suddenly you're, you're there. You're at the end of it. But I want to pick out 
uh, a couple of things about this. First of all, it's in a very strange place. If you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew's got a list of names. He's got it right at the start. That's where it should be. When you're introducing the, the little baby, you have the names beforehand. Luke waits until Jesus is 30 and suddenly decides, ha, I'll pop my list of names in here. Now, is that random or do you think he thought about it? So he puts his list in in a very strange place. He also goes backwards in his list, whereas Matthew goes forwards. And where Matthew only goes as far as Abraham, Luke goes an awful lot further. Now, there's something going on here. Let me just pick out four names in the list. Whose son is this Jesus? Jesus, or God said to him at the baptism, you are my son. What else does it say about him? He's the son of David. David's there in the list. What does that mean? That means he is king. Again, that is affirming he is in the line, the lineage, the descent of King David. So he is the king that the people have waited for. Going a wee bit further along, he's the son of Abraham. Abraham was given a promise that through his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Jesus is the descendant of Abraham through whom the world will be blessed. But Luke goes further back. He's not happy with a little short list of names. He's going to go further. I think there's nearly 80 names here. And he goes back to Adam. And he says that Jesus is the son of Adam. And I think what he's saying there is that Jesus is representing all humanity. This gospel is for everyone. Everyone. Old, young. Do not, listen, do not think the gospel is just for your parents or your grandparents or somebody else. It's for old and young. It's for rich and poor, every class. It's for, it's for male and female. It's for every race. It's for everyone. Jesus is descended from Adam. And then at the very end of chapter 3, something really random, Adam is referred to as the Son of God. Now that's a cage rattler if ever I heard one. Because God only has one son and that's Jesus. So what's going on here? Look, this is a bit mischievous, popping that in there at the end of the list. The fact is, most of us haven't seen it because by the time we've got that far in the list, we've sort of zoned out and, and, and jumped ahead. But Adam is referred to as the son of God. How is Adam the son of God? Is Adam the same as Jesus? Play with you here for a wee while. How is Adam the son of God? What's going on? Because Luke says he is. Well, I think what he's doing is he's just picking up and inviting a contrast between Adam and Jesus. We've just heard that Jesus is the son of God at the baptism. And now Luke takes us all through this and says Adam was also the son of God. How was Adam the son of God? What similarities are there between Adam and Jesus? Well, Adam was formed by God, created by God, and God's spirit was breathed into him. Now, be very careful how you hear what I'm about to say. God the son was not created. He always existed with God. But the flesh and blood and bone that walked around Galilee for 33 years was created in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. And I think that's one of the similarities between Jesus and Adam. But don't mishear me. Jesus, our King, our Savior, God the Son, was not created. He is eternal with God. 
but the physical body that he inhabited as he moved around had to be created and it was created by an act of the Holy Spirit inside the womb of Mary. So that's maybe a point of comparison by which we can, we can link Adam being called a son of God, created by a work of the Spirit, and Jesus, physically speaking, likewise. And you're invited to compare the two of them. You see, there's, a, there's an experience that Adam had as the son of God that Jesus is going to have. And it's this experience here. It's the snake. What sort of son will Adam be when the snake comes along? There's a snake in the garden. There's a snake in the grass. There's a snake in my boot. There's a snake. The snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? Now, what sort of son was Adam in that scenario? Because if Adam was doing his job right, there shouldn't have been a snake in the garden. What sort of son was Adam whenever a snake invaded the garden? What sort of son was Israel? Israel was declared after the Exodus or or during the Exodus to be God's son. But when the Egyptians pursued them, just as a snake came into the garden and pursued Adam and Eve, the Egyptians pursued God's son Israel. And somebody is going to pursue Jesus as well. And this is why Luke puts the list of names where he puts it. He's inviting you to make a contrast. If you do a chapter a day in your reading plan, which lots of people do, and that's fine, and I do it as well, you miss the contrast. At the end of Luke 2, you're told that Adam is the son of God. Or Luke 3. The reason that it's put there is because at the start of Luke 4, Satan's going to rock up and say, are you really the son of God? If you're the son of God. It's the same words almost as as Mary and Adam heard back in the garden. Not Mary, Eve and Adam heard back in the garden. Did God really say that? You see, Jesus will have to go through the same experience as Adam and the same experience as Israel. How will he cope in the wilderness when the snake comes? Because he's just received the call of God on his life. And I want to tell you something, folks. As soon as you receive a call of God on your life, you better get ready for the wilderness. And you better get ready for the snake. Because he is going to show up. Sometimes, I, I, you know, prophetic ministry is an exceptionally powerful thing. But how we respond to it is very important as well. Because if you receive a prophetic word over your life about God's call on your life, There's a joy in that moment, but then there's also a realization there's a wilderness coming. There's a snake coming to test whether or not I'm going to be a son who can be trusted with this calling on my life. What sort of son was Adam when the snake came? Adam failed. What sort of son was Israel in the wilderness? We're going to find out next week that Israel failed over and over and over again the same tests that Jesus faced. What sort of son is Jesus going to be? I'm nearly done. We're going to do this next week. What sort of son will Jesus be in that wilderness? Have you ever been in the wilderness? Are you in the wilderness? It's a lonely place. Have you ever had a period in your life like Jesus' baptism 
when you've encountered the power of God and the Spirit of God and you've heard God put a calling on your life and you come up out of those waters and you're full of the Holy Spirit and you're full of joy and God has placed something on you and then immediately afterwards you're in the wilderness and it's lonely. (laughs) Have you been there? It's all gone quiet. That voice that you heard has all gone quiet. You ever been in the wilderness? I remember being in, in Kruger Park in South Africa with Eugene years ago and we drove and drove and drove and drove and drove and then stopped and got out of the car and the silence was incredible. No vehicles, no machinery, no nothing, just silence. And Jesus is in the wilderness now. And all the the joy and the raucous celebration of baptism has gone. And it's really, really quiet. Have you ever been in a place that's so desperately quiet? And you are yearning to hear the voice of God and you can't hear anything. Have you ever been in a place where the darkness is so real? And you're just screaming. But you hear nothing except the voices in your head. Have you ever been curled up on the floor in the middle of the night? Just complete wilderness. I have. You literally can hear nothing but the negative poisonous voice of the snake. And you're just desperate for something to break through and you feel so alone. It's lonely and it's quiet. And if you want to experience what Jesus then experienced, the power of the Holy Spirit, you have to go through a wilderness. In fact, you maybe go through multiple wilderness experiences in your life. Moments where you know you've heard God in the past, but suddenly it is desperately quiet. Desperately quiet. And you feel so alone. I was just talking to, to Linda about this on Friday. I think sometimes we, we yearn to hear God's voice again, but really what he would say is, you've already heard me. Obey and await further instruction. I've already spoke. I don't need to speak the same thing again. It's already been said. But have you experienced that? And you get into the wilderness and you think, how did I get here? You know, I was, I was in a place of such joy and celebration. I was in a place where I, I heard the voice of God and, and I experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. How did I then get here? And you look back a few months and you think, my goodness, how have I moved from there to here? What did I do wrong is the, is the question that you ask. What did I do wrong that allowed me to then end up in this place? And the answer is you didn't do anything wrong. God brought you there. It's <laughs> very good of him, wasn't it? The Spirit, in in chapter 4, verse 1, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He didn't sin. He didn't get sent there as a point. You bad child, go to the wilderness for 40 days. You know, that's not what happened. He was led there. In fact, when you read Mark's account, Mark actually says he was driven there. And Mark uses the same word in Greek that's used when, when, when Mark writes about demons being cast out. It says Jesus was cast into the wilderness by the Spirit. So if you're in a wilderness right now and you're sort of thinking to yourself, how did I actually get here? Do not come to the conclusion that you're a sinner and you're being punished. Because the Spirit drives people into the wilderness. And why am I here? Why am I in the wilderness? 
It's because there's a call of God in your life and you're being tested. What kind of son will you be? What kind of child will you be? Because in the past, Adam failed, Israel failed. Now it all rests on Jesus. What kind of son will he be? And another thing that will happen in the wilderness, you will go toe-to-toe with the enemy and you will know it. (laughs) You'll go toe-to-toe with the enemy and he will throw all sorts of poison at you to try and derail the calling that God has put on your life. How does Satan work? How does he try to break Jesus? How will Jesus deal with him and come out the other side victorious? Tune in next week. And we'll see what actually happens. Those first 13 verses of Luke chapter 4. Now that the anointed son is in the wilderness, how is he going to overcome? And then go back to his hometown and go back to other towns and just cause havoc for the kingdom of God. I really believe that that Jesus' encounter in the wilderness with the devil is the most important thing that he did apart from the cross. And that's why I've slowed down here. I was tempted yesterday to try and cover the whole lot and I thought, no, slow it down, slow it down. So let's just pray before we sing. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray for anyone who feels that they're in a wilderness. I pray, God, that they will take encouragement that they have heard your voice in the past and that your call is upon their lives and that you are not punishing them. And I pray, God, you'd give them strength and faith to reflect back, Lord, on what you have spoken to them in the past. I pray, God, that we would come through as faithful sons and daughters. I pray, God, that we would honor you in the fight And ask, Lord, that we would be filled with the power of your Holy Spirit. Let us just take some simple lessons, Father, from these few verses. And Lord, help us to honor you as we live in Jesus' name. Amen.